It's Thursday, August 5th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Dr. Blowjob, send me a job. I'm out of work and I feel like a slob. Please twist on your magic knob. And Dr. Blowjob, send me. Please, please mend me. Dr. Blowjob, send me a job. Thank you, Bernice. Hey, you're out of work and I'm not. And that's why I can show up to host the one program that puts Americans back to work. One American at a time. Our first job seeker is Sterile Gorgon of Brooklyn, Iowa. Happy to be on the show, uh, Dr. Blowjob. Oh, just call me BJ, Sterile. So tell me, where were you pinked? At Midwest Great Pains Packing, Doctor. I was a standby safety chain operator at the Lamb Sluice. That's hard work, but it is work. Now, you stay right where you are, Sterile. I've been doing that for months. Our other job seeker is a first-timer in the line. He's Tweed Eastern from same-sex Massachusetts. Who was at the other end of your downsizing hatchet, Tweed? Uh, worldwide whatever. I was halfway through my training as a generic brand special events manager when the bubble burst. Well, let's see if we can blow it up again. The voice you're about to hear, because you can't see him behind the screen, is a real employer with a real job opening. He'll test each of you with a job-related scenario, and your solution to the problem will determine which of you will walk away with a job, and which will return to a life of uncertainty, restlessness, and free-floating stress. Sounds like you've been there. (laughs) Mr. Gorgon. You're working for one of our communications divisions cutting a data pathway through an old-growth redwood forest and your blade accidentally cuts through a nest of endangered songbirds. How would you alert the authorities? Well, sir, where I come from, we have a saying. Eat what you kill and have the EPA for dessert. Oh, you come strong out of the box there, Sterile. Mr. Eastern. You're working as a tour person in one of our theme parks, and the fun bus you're on accidentally runs over a trained pony at the petting zoo. How do you handle the shock crowd of tourists and school children? I'd remind them, sir, that it's a zero-sum life now. When that pony goes into our meat wagon, it means more hamburger for everybody. Oh, let's eat. And now the moment of truth. Who gets hired and who stays mired? The moment of truth. And yet, truth really doesn't have anything to do with it. If it did, the vast majority of the unemployed would be back at work. And the handful of lazy, system-playing, out-of-work slackers would fall off the radar. Or hire themselves out to GOP rallies as negative role models. I've made my decision. I don't want sterile. And I don't want tweed. I want them both. I want ruthless and toothless. I know good news when I hear it. Well, thanks, Doc. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Bernice. Take it away. Whatever. Dr. Blowjob, you got me a job. Now I can eat and I don't have to rob. You turned on your magic knob. They downsized and pinked me. You made them rethink me. Dr. Blowjob, thanks for the job. It always amazes me that there are these sudden revelations grounded on material that's been available to anybody with the least desire to do some serious research. The New York Times now has this big story about the fact that Pakistan has basically been running the Taliban and running the insurgency in Afghanistan. You know, the the intelligence service there has been doing the whole thing behind our backs to our, not with our best interests at heart. Okay, well, this is something that anybody who read, for example, the book Ghost Warriors, which is the story of the Americans in Afghanistan from the time that we, uh, you know, thumbed our nose at the Russians until the present, would know in depth. But according to the New York Times, here's what they say. Americans 
Fighting the war in Afghanistan have long harbored strong suspicions that Pakistan's military spy service has guided the Afghan insurgency with a hidden hand, even as Pakistan receives more than a billion a year from Washington for its help combating the militants, according to a trove of secret military field reports made public Sunday. Of course, we're talking about the WikiLeaks, but you don't need the WikiLeaks to know this. Not all of this is hidden information. I mean, as I say, Ghost Warriors does a full rundown on the fact that Pakistani intelligence has been running the insurgency for 20 years and has been basically laughing at us, taking our money and screwing us right and left. Yes, they've got the bomb. They've also got the Taliban 60 kilometers outside of Islamabad. They're in deep doo-doo. The documents suggest that Pakistan, an ostensible ally of the United States, which they have never been, allows representatives of its spy service to meet directly with the Taliban in secret strategy sessions to organize networks of militant groups that fight against American soldiers in Afghanistan and even hatch plots to assassinate Afghan leaders. Look. I'm not going to go on with the details. Figure it out for yourself. The fact is, is the Pakistanis have been playing us a deadly double deal game, and we have got to smack those boys upside the head. You've got Hillary Clinton, you know, arriving there and and with bundles of money under her arms. You know, the Bell of Wellesley with with baskets of greenbacks appears in Afghanistan, you know, better than a burqa. Here she comes and they take it and they use us, they use it to screw us and kill us. Yeah, I know they've got the bomb and we're scared to death, but it's time to call their bluff. Dave, it's truly crazy. I mean, uh, I am by no means uh, a big supporter of radical Islam. I'm not a jihadist. I don't believe in the, you know, the not me, the you and them, you know. But I've got, I've got to say, it's getting really, really, really crazy. This religious war that's building in this country, this anti-Islam war, this crusade. It is a crusade, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. On yeah. 9/11, right? Uh, Members of the Dove World Outreach Church, a non-denominational Christian church of dubious credibility, <laughs> in a church of dubious credibility in Gainesville, Florida, where I have performed once. It's known as Pig Town. Originally, it was like a town for pigs, and it appears the pigs have returned. This church plans to burn copies of the Quran in a public ceremony billed as a memorial for the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We had mentioned this before, but yeah. it's actually going to happen. Oh, right? boy. But why, Dave? In Gainesville, Florida. In Gainesville, right? okay. Florida. Why, why? 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 Yes. Why? And there. Well, the answer, of course, is, is up on YouTube. The the pastor William Sapp, who, by the way, is under investigation for using the five hundred one c three or whatever it is the non you know the nonprofit church status to make tons of money, like Tony Alamo did back in when we used to live in L.A. Selling he, uh, bobbleheads of himself. Yeah, right? yeah, or leather jackets that his, you know, that his cult members would, would, you know, make all day. So he explained what this is all about. Why would we burn the Koran? Good question. He says in a video the church posted to YouTube, posted it to YouTube so that Muslims around the world can watch this guy. Uh, and, you know, remember, they don't think he's different from us. They don't think he's a whacked out kook brain. No. They think he's just Mr. Everyday on the street American. Okay. He says, why would we burn the Koran? The Koran, he says, the holy book of Islam? Because we're Christian. <laughs> uh, that's a, okay. It's, I, I, Crusade. I, I, I've got your opener. Right. Yeah, prior, prior to the whole book burning scheme, Dove World Outreach Center was best known for using the slogan "Islam is of the devil," which it had plastered across its website and in large signs outside the church headquarters. Sap says in the video that Islam's devilishness is why the Quran must burn. Okay, now this is it, though. This is the credo that we should all have burned. Right, either onto our chests or, or on really nice art T-shirts. Okay. It's called, What is Being a Christian? Being a Christian does not mean you go to church. Being a Christian does not mean you believe in God. Being a Christian means you are Christ-like, or at least attempting to go in that direction. And Jesus the Christ, he was sent, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil, so that's what we're going to do. 
Wait a minute, I missed the logic in that somewhere. Yeah, well, since Islam is of the it devil, is of the devil, and the, the Quran the is, the is the holy book, book then it's the holy book of the devil, and that's why that we're burning like it. Pentac- pentacles yeah. and and things like that. No, and, and while he's know, saying it, he holds circles. up a copy of the of the Quran, sprays oh it with gosh. lighter fluid, and lights it. Okay. YouTube, they'll do anything. So, he's, he's, the next one, he's got a dog and funny dogs and cats peeing on the uh, and on then the burning Quran, them, and then burning, and burning them, them because course. it's all devilish. Yeah. Here's here's my take on it though too, okay. which is and it's part of the whole drone thing too. It's the it's the creeping cowardice of America. Drones are only for cowards. Kill at a distance. Okay, it's 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 the soldier turned coward. Here we have the bigot turned coward. Okay, why doesn't he take a tip from? The, the man who should be his mentor, the blessed Raymond Lull. The, breath, the blessed Raymond Lull was a Christian prelate on Majorca back in the, oh, I think like the 15th century, something like that. Oh, okay. And he decided that indeed Islam was of the devil. Okay. So he took a ship across to North Africa to what is now Morocco, and he would run through the streets carrying the pig of a, head of a pig in his hands, yelling, Muhammad is a false prophet. And he was stoned to death. He was stoned to death. Very soon thereafter. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so why doesn't Mr. Well, that can Sapp, happen easily in Morocco. Yeah, I mean. Well, why doesn't Sap take a nice trip to Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. get himself a nice pig head, Good. and run around Ridya yelling, Islam is of the devil, burning a Koran. Pig head in one hand, burning Koran in the other. I'm yeah, sure we everybody find- must get stoned. <laughs> oh, Pete. Superpower crossfire caught between fools and liars, pitting nation against nation for world domination. And who was right and who was wrong and who was weak and who was strong and how much longer can it go on before we all eat that bomb? And who decides when humanity cries and we all have to eat that Jimmy Jones pie? Why, tis just the premier or the president. The only two who decide every second of our earthly residence. Superpower crossfire cut between fools and liars, pitting nation against nation for world domination. And we all feel powerless as we're drawn into the power clutch of the dueling power lust who demand that those in the middle must decide it's either them or us. Superpower crossfire cut between fools and liars, pitting nation against nation for world domination. And one's a fool, the other liar. One's a fool, the other liar. And don't you know they're not like us? Don't you know they're communist? Don't you know they're not like us? Or don't you know they're capitalist? Cappy, commie, commie, cappy, them are us, them are us. Who do you trust? I am no cheerleader for the Electoral College, so I'm happy to announce that the Massachusetts legislature has approved a new law intended to bypass the Electoral College system and ensure that the winner of the presidential election is determined by the national popular vote and about time. Quote, What we are submitting is the idea that the president should be selected by the majority of the people in the United States of America, Senator James Eldridge, an action Democrat, said before the Senate voted to enact the bill. Under the new bill, he said, every vote will be of the same weight across the country. The bill, which passed on a 28 to 9 vote, now heads to Democratic Governor Deval Patrick's desk. The governor said in the past that he supports the bill. Okay, so under the law, which was enacted by the, this House last week, all 12 of the state's electoral votes would be awarded to the candidate who receives the most votes nationally. So it's a wait and see. Say here in the state of Washington, uh, so-and-so, Barack Obama in 2012, wins the state of Washington. Uh, but he doesn't get the electoral votes unless he is the majority winner across the country. Supporters are campaigning state by state to get such bills enacted. One state's uh, accounting for a majority of the electoral votes, or 270 out of the 538, have enacted the laws. The candidate winning the most votes nationally would be assured a majority of the electoral college votes. That would hold true no matter how the other states vote and how their electoral votes are distributed. Illinois, New Jersey, Hawaii, Maryland, and Washington have already approved the legislation according to the National Popular Vote Campaign's website. The new system would only go into effect once a sufficient number of states have passed laws that would make it work. Well, you can add Massachusetts to that list. So they're picking it up. They get California. I mean, they'll be well on the way. The current electoral college system is confusing and causes presidential candidates to focus unduly on a handful of battleground states, supporters say. They also say that the popular vote winner has lost in four of the nation's 56 elections. 
right? I believe that Al Gore was one of them. Presidential candidates now ignore great swaths of the country. They consider strong blue or red states and focus their campaigning on contested states, Eldred says. If the president were picked by national popular vote, he argued, candidates would spend their attention... If the president were picked by national popular vote, he argued, candidates would spread their attention out more evenly. That's good. That's really what we're talking about is making sure that every voter, no matter where they live, (laughs) that they're being reached out to, he said. Opponents say the current system works. They are concerned about a possible scenario where candidate X wins nationally. Now, that isn't racist, is it? I mean, they don't think like we're not talking here about a... uh, a, um, uh, a Muslim named X. This is just candidate X wins nationally. But candidate Y has won in Massachusetts. In that case, all of the state's 12 electoral votes would go to candidate X, the candidate who was not supported by Massachusetts voters. Well, yeah. I mean, that would be a problem if we're talking about electing something that's specifically for Massachusetts, like their senators or representatives. But the president is a national figure. Uh, I'm not fully aware of why the Electoral College was put together the way it was back down in the old founding days. Uh, Had something to do with balance of power and such like that. But the fact is, you know, that even if we do do away with Electoral College, people living in small states where nobody lives at all, like Wyoming, they won't get a lot of visits from the candidates, but they don't have to worry. They've got two senators. That's like one senator per six people of that state. They've got plenty of power. Well, every once in a while, you know, uh, I have to just kind of look through the newspaper with with a yellow highlighter because it just gets so crazy and circle things. Well, this is this is one thing I circled in the in the good old gray lady this morning in a totally different article about disgruntled people in Edison, New Jersey, or maybe they were just oversexed people. Maybe they were just gruntled. Maybe they were just gruntled. Anyway, this was a quote: Ron Mizkowski, an Edison police lieutenant who says he's not a hardliner for either party and has grievances that are across the board, immigration, the wars, taxes, the usual. Okay, here's here's what he said. I think what we need to do is stop going into this socialistic society, which is what I think his goal is, uh, meaning Obama, of course. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's not a true socialist, but his ideals and ideas are this kumbaya thing where everyone gets the same health care and the same benefits. And most of the health care is going to go to immigrants. Well, the country wasn't built that way. I'm on the phone with Liz Woodruff, who is running the Think Outside the Bomb Disarmament Summer Camp in Chamayo North, North, excuse me, New Mexico. It's, it's actually only north of Mexico, uh, 40 miles from Los Alamos. How are you doing, Liz? I'm doing great. Um, we are uh, have just launched our disarmament summer encampment. We have about uh, 70 young people here and are expecting more every day. Uh-huh. Well, g- give me the outline of what you're doing. What, what does it look like and what do you, what do you intend to achieve? Um, we are trying to build a better future by embracing a permaculture um, methodology of action and resistance. Mm-hmm. So we have called young people from across the United States down to Chimayo, New Mexico, um, to contribute to the construction of um, a permaculture space. And we have wonderful um, uh, compost toilets, uh, solar showers, gardens, and other structures to do that. Um, and at the same time, we're training people in permaculture, and that's dialoguing with um, training them in organizing and action and modes of resistance, as well as educating them about the destruction of the nuclear industrial complex from power to weapons and waste. So um, we've just ramped up uh, today after about four days before um, kind of taking it easy and getting settled in, and now we're beginning to vision for our action that will take place at Los Alamos um, on the 65th anniversary of the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima, um, and we will do a direct action on the labs demanding an end to U.S. hypocrisy um, on nuclear weapons and the redirection of that energy, resources, and um, genius of the minds that we have towards uh, renewable energy um, and other sources of uh, job creation and life-giving. Well, let me ask you one thing. When you say direct action, what sort of plan do you have in mind? 
Well, um, we are going to be doing um, a big critical mass event uh, starting at Ashley Pond in the heart of Los Alamos. So Ashley Pond is actually the location of the first um, plutonium pit facility um, when the bomb was originally built. And the plutonium pit is the core of the nuclear weapon. Um, now it's, it's a very contaminated pond um, in a park. But we'll be meeting there, um, and we will be integrating art, um, performance, uh, and having specific demands associated with the lab. And so um, we expect around 100 people or more um, to uh, engage in a performative act of uh, and demonstration towards the lab and, and some forms of resistance. Well, I, I, wish, you, I wish you luck. I, I, I hope you don't get arrested, but sometimes that's, you know, that's part of the job. It's very hard to do permaculture inside a cell, but I'm sure if anybody could do it, it would be you. You know, Peter, I was just going to respond to, to that notion of, uh, of, you know, permaculture inside a cell. I think um, what we're saying is that at this point, when billions of dollars are going to weapons destruction and there are people throughout New Mexico in the surrounding community that don't have jobs, um, don't have access to educa- education, and their public health is being affected, um, this is one of those times where it's really important um, that we we take the kind of action that can um, show the need for a transformation. And so this is one of those times where resistance actually benefits um, the permaculture environment. I agree. Absolutely, 100%. I think the mixture of the two, I think the, the last interview we did, I called it uh, uh, permaculture versus the nuclear trigger. And it really is and quite, I love that. It really is quite a gulf, isn't it, Liz? I mean, when you think about it, nothing could be more life-giving and nothing could be more death-dealing. And, uh, you know, it's just mm-hmm. uh, from my window, or from my porch, actually, I saw a Trident submarine go by up Admiralty Inlet. There was, there was enough hydrogen bomb power on that single submarine to produce Pretty much end the world. And I thought, now there's strategic thinking. That's really going to bring peace <laughs> to the world. It should have been a barge full of, you know, onion sprouts would have done, would have actually been a better, better foreign policy threat. Well, this is terrific. Absolutely. And now, uh, now when, uh, when is the event there by the polluted pond going to take place? Is that on the 6th? It's on the 6th, on Friday the 6th. Um, we will be having actions um, in Santa Fe and the surrounding area just Um, awareness and outreach actions um, leading up to it. Okay, good. We'll be talking with you on the 6th also. Thank you. Thank you. Liz Woodruff, she's out there in Chimayo, uh, New Mexico, uh, putting permaculture up against the bomb. To make a long, long story terse, be it blessing, be it curse, the Lord designed this universe With built-in obsolescence Each twinkling little star and sun Enjoys its own atomic run Exploding when its time is done With cosmic incandescence Astronomers predict someday Our own sun will blaze away There'll be a glorious display of sunburst helium masses Our little planet Earth below Will join this pyrotechnic show With blazing hydrogen aglow And thermonuclear gases Thank God this great combustion day Is several billion years away So as philosophers all say, why fret, why fume, why worry? A jillion moons will wane and wax. Sit down, make out your income tax. Enjoy your life, be calm, relax, for God is in no hurry. But oh my friends, I have a hunch. Mankind might beat God to the punch. Well, it appears that the government succeeded in keeping General Motors and Chrysler, etc., from bankruptcy by basically buying them. Seems to have worked. Well, there's other good news. Remember, Obama's the man that the party says is Che and Mao and Pol Pot and Stalin for bringing us what they call raw socialism. You know, well... 
Like a mantra, officials from both the Bush and Obama administrations have trumpeted how the government's sweeping interventions to prop up the economy since 2008 helped avert a second depression. Well, it didn't actually avert a depression, but it has indeed dampened the one we're in. Now, two leading economists wielding complex quantitative models say that that assertion can be proved empirically. That's an image to me. Economists coming at you wielding complex quantitative models. It's kind of right out of, um, you know, Viking history. Watch out! That economist has a complicated model! In a new paper, The Economist argued that without the Wall Street bailout, the bank stress tests, the emergency lending, and asset purchases by the Federal Reserve and the Obama administration's fiscal stimulus program, the nation's gross national product would be about 6.5% lower this year. That's some amazing. I mean, if, if they're right, if, if these guys are true blue, then that's a big deal. If, if you keep the, the GDP from dropping 6.5%, you are literally keeping the economy out of free fall. In addition, there would be about 8.5 million fewer jobs on top of the more than 8 million already lost, and the economy would be experiencing deflation instead of low inflation. Well, I, I won't agree with them on that, but who cares? The paper by Alan S. Blinder, a Princeton professor and former vice chairman of the Fed, and Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, represents a first stab at comprehensively estimating the effects of the economic policy responses of the last few years. They quote, while the effectiveness of any individual element certainly can be debated, there is little doubt that in total, the policy response was highly effective, they write. Mr. Blinder and Mr. Zandi emphasize the sheer size of the fallout from the financial crisis. They estimate that the total direct cost of the recession at $1.6 trillion. Now remember, there was almost a trillion dollars of non-money that disappeared in the bubble. So I don't know if that's part of the direct cost or if that's part of the cost down the line. I know it's one of the things that's taken all of that discretionary spending out of the economy. And they say, okay, that's what the direct cost was. And the total budgetary cost, after adding in nearly $750 billion in lost revenue from the weaker economy, at $2.35 trillion, or about 16% of GDP. That's a sixth of everything we produce. That am damn serious figures. By comparison, the savings and loan crisis, you know, that's the one uh, Senator Dangfence was so deeply involved in, only cost about $350 billion in today's dollars, $275 billion in direct cost, and an additional $75 billion from the recession of 1990 to 1991, or about 6% of GDP at the time. Gee, only $275 billion? That ain't nothing. That's only, well, that's only two years in Afghanistan. Told about the findings, another leading economist was unconvinced. I'm very surprised that they find these big impacts, said John B. Taylor, a Stanford professor and a senior fellow at the ultra-conservative Hoover Institution, which is basically, uh, it's basically a farm for old righties and people who know how to say no to everybody else's yes. It doesn't correspond at all to my empirical work. His empirical work is probably reading all the right-wing blogs before he goes out and has a drink. Mr. Taylor and the Fed had successfully stabilized the commercial paper and money markets, but he argued that its purchases of $1.25 trillion in mortgage-backed securities have not been effective. And he said the Obama administration's stimulus program had very little impact and not much to show for it except a legacy of higher debt. Just excuse me for a second while I yawn. Well, you know, when James Watt was a Secretary of Interior under Reagan, he said, use up the planet, do anything you want to to it, because Christ will return, and in a snap of his fingers, he will renew the entire planet. Bang, was, just like that? Just like that. That was. Mm. And there, there is that thought among certain evangelicals, all of whom are insane. Now, <laughs> all right, Pete. But things are coming a cropper. Concerns yep. about pollution and water quality have prompted an environmental advocacy group to call for the banning of baptisms in the lower Jordan River where the Bible says Jesus was baptized. Oh, my. See, in Jesus' time, there were no real pollutants in the water. A few apostles may have taken a pee, but that doesn't count. And uh, uh, this was a freshwater thing, and yeah, it was just Baptism is a freshwater thing. Uh, it is, yeah, yeah. It's got to do it there. For reasons of public health as well as religious integrity, baptism should be banned from taking place in the river, said Gidon Bromberg, the Israeli director of Echo 
Chemical Peace Friends of the Earth Middle East. The Israeli authorities said the test done on the water showed that it's perfectly okay for baptism. Of course, how do the Israelis know what's good for baptism or not, right? And the site inside an Israeli-controlled military zone, so where Jesus was baptized originally, is now probably mined. All right. Mm-hmm. Faces another baptismal site on Jordan's other side of the river. Both sites attract pilgrims who come to the Holy Land, and both are claimed as the authentic site where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And Brumberg says, our call is to halt baptisms on both sides of the river. It is exactly the same polluted water. On both sides of the, the river. river. Well, that's a call that, for peace. That is. That is certainly is. I think if we recognize that the water is the same on both sides of the river, where else can we go but uphill? A, 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 a uh, what do you call it? A, 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 a blueprint for peace in the Middle East. Well, that's it. Here's your keys. Goodbye, friends, and happy motoring back on the freeway, which is already in progress. There are real signs in Washington that the AFPAC occupation, or shall we say the Afghan occupation and the Pakistan special arrangement, is coming under increasing scrutiny, and there is more and more uneasy heads there on both sides of the aisle in Congress. Two Senate Democrats who have become leading voices on military issues, according to Politico, sent a letter to President Barack Obama demanding the Senate have more influence in bilateral agreements between the United States and its strategic partners. And we're talking here specifically about Pakistan and Afghanistan. With news from Afghanistan becoming bleaker, Senators Jim Webb of Virginia and Russ Feingold of Wisconsin asked the president to respect the Senate's constitutional obligation to give advice and consent on treaties and declarations of war. So we have no declaration of war that has sent us into Afghanistan or sent the drones into Pakistan. Reminiscent of Gulf of Tonkin, reminiscent of... My, of all of our undeclared wars, it's the bane of our empire. They ask that any agreement, these are the two senators, with Afghanistan should carry the weight of a treaty and be submitted to the Senate for its advice and consent in keeping with constitutional requirements. This is a serious ploy, and it's going to bring more pressure on the Obama administration to open up about actually what's going on in Afghanistan, of course, with the WikiLeaks and the Eikenberry cables. I guess we know as much as they do. Feingold, long an opponent of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he has indeed been just that, joined forces with his Foreign Relations Committee colleague to challenge the notion that the open-ended presence of U.S. military forces in Afghanistan serves our national interest. Good question, Russ. The senators cautioned Obama against repeating President George W. Bush's efforts to sidestep restrictions on the executive in declaring and funding wars. There's another nice little, little ploy, which is, gee, Barack, don't be W. Agreements governing these operations have profound implications for our troops, the American people, and Congress's constitutional responsibility to declare war and make spending decisions about military operations. Any such agreements carry the weight of a treaty and should be submitted to the Senate for its advice and consent in keeping with constitutional requirements. So Feingold and Webb are emphasizing the dangerous precedent created when the United States and Iraq entered into a bilateral agreement with, without Senate review. That should not be repeated in Afghanistan, where America has been engaged militarily since 2001 in what, what has become the nation's longest war, they wrote. Again, I repeat, it is not a war. It is an occupation. You declare war. I don't know if you declare operation. I guess you just make a vertical insertion, and there you are. This model says the bra with straps tied to plastic pots and a water hose with seedlings acting as a belt adds a contemporary touch. The bra fits much better than it looks. The Senate's second highest ranking Democrat has recently lent his support to a growing effort spearheaded by more junior members to eliminate or diminish the power of the minority to enforce a 60-vote requirement on Senate business. This is uh, Dick Durbin speaking. I think there is a high level of frustration and a feeling that we missed many opportunities, he said. And a lot of us have been completely worn down by a requirement of 60 votes on everything. This was rare when I got here 14 years ago and now it is rare otherwise. Durbin used as an example one of his own initiatives, which was nearly killed by the supermajority requirement. Okay. 
Here we were with amendments on the Wall Street reform, 28 amendments by majority vote. I want to offer an amendment on credit card fees, and they say, oh, that'll be 60. Well, where did that come from, Durbin said. Durbin's amendment ultimately passed, but he said the 60 was designed for me to lose. I won instead, but I was lucky. But the point is, if you can't just out of the blue say, oh, no, no, that's not a majority, that's 60, and not have any basis other than that you don't, that if you don't, we'll filibuster. It really reaches the point where this place isn't on the square, and I think it should be. With Republicans breaking their own filibuster records, both leading and rank-and-file Democrats have been studying various ways to end abuse of the rules by the minority. One of the leading proposals on the table is the so-called constitutional option. The Constitution grants both chambers the power to write their own rules. The Senate, as a continuing body, usually leaves the rules untouched and changes require 67 votes. But a growing chorus of senators and experts now say the rule governing filibusters is unconstitutional insofar as it's used to prevent the Senate from adopting new rules. This is not a radical theory or a partisan one. Both Richard Nixon, then the vice president and thus the president of the Senate, and Robert Byrd, then majority leader and considered the greatest parliamentarian to ever walk the chamber, have argued in favor of the constitutional option. Byrd said, This Congress is not obliged to be bound by the dead hand of the past. But... For all the theory, the constitutional option has never quite been used in practice. Instead, it's been repeatedly and effectively almost used. In 1917, Senate reformers were ready to use it against the filibuster. A compromise was brokered, and that's how cloture, the ability to shut off a filibuster, was created. In 1975, reformers again were ready to wield it against the filibuster, and this time, a motion to uphold the constitutional option passed, and a motion to table it failed. And again, a compromise was brokered, this time bringing the number of votes necessary to breach the filibuster down from two-thirds of the Senate to three-fifths. Hopefully, it's on the way out. And I'm going to sit here and keep talking on this web-based radio program continuously until they do it. (sighs) Well, once again, I'm looking at the op-ed page and reading uh, Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times, and I find out something I didn't know. And let me read Mr. Kristof just for a moment to you, Peter. It was reflexive for liberals to rail at President George W. Bush for jingoism, but it is President Obama who is now requesting 6.1% more in military spending than at the peak of military spending under Mr. Bush. And it is Mr. Obama who has tripled the number of American troops in Afghanistan since he took office, a bill providing $37 billion to continue financing America's two wars was approved by the House and is awaiting his signature. Under Mr. Obama, we are now spending more money on the military after adjusting for inflation than at the peak of the Cold War, Vietnam War, or Korean War. Our battle fleet is larger than the next 13 navies combined, according to Defense Secretary Gates. The intelligence apparatus is so bloated that, according to the Washington Post, the number of people with top-secret clearances is one and a half times the population of Washington, D.C., Meanwhile, a sobering report from the College Board says that the United States, which used to lead the world in the proportion of young people with college degrees, has dropped to 12th. And the marijuana war rages on. Actually, peace is on the horizon. Someone is waving some green flag way there at the end of the tunnel or the end of the bong or the pipe or the whatever. But the the war on... The war on leaves may be ending. Patients treated at Veterans Affairs hospitals and clinics will be able to use medical marijuana in the 14 states where it's legal, according to new federal guidelines. The directive from the Veterans Affairs Department in the coming week is intended to clarify current policy that says veterans can be denied pain medication if they use illegal drugs. It's great, you know, guys come back from the war, which is nothing but pain, and if they take anything that isn't okay with Mr. O, (laughs) well, then they can just live with their pain. Veterans groups have complained for years that this could bar veterans from VA benefits if they are caught using medical marijuana. 
The new guidance does not authorize VA doctors to begin prescribing medical marijuana, which is considered an illegal drug under federal law, but it will now make clear that in the 14 states where state and federal law are in conflict, VA clinics generally will allow the use of medical marijuana for veterans already taking it under other clinicians. For years... There have been veterans coming back from the Iraq war who needed medical marijuana and had to decide whether they were willing to cut down on their VA medications. John Targowski, a legal advisor to the group Veterans for Medical Marijuana Access, which worked with the VA on the issue, said in a recent press conference. Well, it's about time. I'm talking with Robert Chavez, who is out at the encampment in New Mexico that Think Beyond the Bomb has put together to confront Los Alamos and try to turn us in a proper direction. Good to have you on the show. Uh, Give me an idea of what's going on out there. Yeah, it's great to be here, Peter. Um, Right now, what we're doing is um, we're having workshops, and there's um, a lot of different people, you know, speaking with each other, trying to build relationships and, you know, build networks and you know, we're, a lot of people are doing a lot of good work out here. You know, I'm really, really, really proud to say that I'm a part of this. I'm, I'm 17 years old, and I've been working with environmental issues for more than 10 years now. I was kind of born into the movement. Um, grandmother, Marion Naranjo, who is a... Um, she has her own organization, Honor Our Pueblo Existence, which I am the youth coordinator of, and that has given me the wonderful opportunity to work with a lot of these groups and stuff like that. Um, I've done a lot of different, you know... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, this is in New Mexico that you're working. You are a New Mexico uh, native, is that correct? Yes, sir. I'm a Native American. Yes. Yeah. So that's so you, you're there. You're right on the scene. Do you think that this uh, permaculture camp will have a positive effect on not only the people in Los Alamos who are hard-headed to begin with, but the, 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 the public that is observing this event? Exactly, yeah. There's a real, real big issue that I've had with getting public involvement, especially in the younger generation. So I think this is a really, really positive step forward in incorporating that. Um, I've been working, you know what I mean, for a long time, and there's not really many people my age. So this was like, you know, the sort of perfect fit for me after, you know, I met with these people, and, you know, it's just like a perfect connection, you know, that we've bonded so well. And I do think there's going to be a really, really positive, you know, stuff coming out of this because, you know, it needs to happen. There's got to be the people who say, we're the ones going to do this, and, you know, it's got to be the young people, you know. There's, there's a lot of older people that have been doing this for years and years, but then the young people who are really oblivious to the fact that we live right near to a really, really powerful place, you know, the creation of the atomic bomb, you know, there's a lot of people who are so involved in the American society, you know, TVs, iPods and stuff like that, that it's ridiculous, you know what I mean, to know that you're living right next to this place, but yet be so unaware of the activities and stuff that's going on there. Well, thank you, Robert. I appreciate appreciate your take on this. I know you're going to be involved with what's going on on the 6th, and we'll be talking with all of you again. And thanks for coming on Radio Free Oz. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Thank you, sir, for this wonderful opportunity. Well, I don't know how it was when you were growing up, Pete, but because uh, there you were in, in, in Cleveland. But on the West Coast, so close to Mexico, there was a great enthusiasm amongst the youth for, of all things, bullfighting. No, bullfighting was not part of my right to passage in Cleveland, Ohio. Didn't get You're there. right. Yeah. Well, it was kind of magical on the West Coast where, while we were growing up. And I, I read recently in the paper that the not-quite-free state of Catalonia, which is in northeastern uh, Spain, they would not like to be in Spain at all, thank you very much, but uh, they have banned bullfighting fighting and uh, in spain that's it, barcelona it, what, baby. that's barcelona in catalonia the capital of which is barcelona there used to be three bull rings there now there's only one there used to be thousands of people that went now there's only a few hundred and the question is whether it's you know about animal you know about not watching animals get killed in public you know uh, uh, whether it's that or whether it's like an assertion of statehood in Catalonia, no, we're different from every place else. Well, this took me back to to, to uh, Ernest Hemingway, which was he was kind of the 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 Picasso of fiction at that time, and they both of them were very concerned with the images of bulls and bull rings, and I. Pulled Death in the Afternoon out of the bookcase, and I read just it opened a chapter two, and I got to read you a sentence because this is this is a writer, you know. Let me just read two two sentences from chapter two. 
Keeping within the rules for bullfighting on foot in a closed ring formulated by years of experience, which, if known and followed, permit a man to perform certain actions with a bull without being caught by the bull's horns, the bullfighter may, by decreasing his distance from the bull's horns, depend more and more on his own reflexes and judgment of that distance to protect him from the points. Sentence number one. Lovely. Oh, this danger of goring, which the man creates voluntarily, can be changed to certainty of being caught and tossed by the bull if the man, through ignorance, slowness, torpidness, blind folly, or momentary grogginess, breaks any of these fundamental rules for the execution of the different suertes. I think there are not too many Americans who could put two sentences so complicated like that together anymore. Hooray, hooray for sane federal judges. A federal judge has blocked the most controversial parts of Arizona's immigration enforcement law from going into effect. Whew. A ruling that at least temporarily squashed a state policy that had inflamed the national debate over immigration. Not only the national debate, it got bad international press. Judge Susan Bolton of Federal District Court issued a preliminary injunction against sections of the law scheduled to take immediate effect that called for police officers to check a person's immigration status while enforcing other laws and required immigrants to prove that they were authorized to be in the country or risk state charges. She issued the injunction in response to a legal challenge brought against the law by the Obama administration. A major victory for the DOJ. A spokesman for Governor Jan Brewer, you know, she's the blondie wingnut, the, she's the governor of Arizona, the laughingstock of America, although Georgia is trying hard to get to the top there, too. She's a Republican who signed the law and has campaigned on it for election to a full term. And the governor, she said she would appeal the injunction and ask for a speedy review. Legal experts predicted that the case would end up before the Supreme Court. The passing of this controversial bill renewed calls for an overhaul of federal immigration law and led to repeated rebukes of it from President Obama and Attorney General Holder, who maintained that immigration policy is under the purview of the federal government, not individual states. The Mexican government, joined by seven other Latin American nations, supported one of the lawsuits against the law. The attorneys general of several states backed Arizona. So this is, uh, this is a big happening. The ruling came four days before 1,200 National Guard members were scheduled to report to the southwest border and assist federal and local law enforcement agencies there, part of the Obama administration's benighted response to growing anxiety over the border and immigration that has fed support for the law. Uh, I see no reason why we should be sending National Guardsmen to the border to keep people out. An armed border? Hmm, now there's a vision. Judge Bolton largely sided with arguments in a lawsuit by the Obama administration that the law, rather than closely hewing to existing federal statutes, as its supporters had claimed, interferes with longstanding federal authority over immigration and could lead to harassment of citizens and legal immigrants. Could lead? No, will lead. There is a substantial likelihood that officers will wrongly arrest legal resident aliens, she wrote. By enforcing the statute, Arizona would impose, she said, citing a previous Supreme Court case, a distinct, unusual, and extraordinary burden on legal resident aliens that only the federal government has the authority to impose. So if you're going to impose unnatural regulations on people, you've got to do it as a fed. You can't do it as a state. Aside from stopping the requirement that the police initiate immigration checks, the judge also blocked provisions that allowed the police to hold anyone arrested for any crime until his immigration status was determined. Sig Heil! Requiring Arizona law enforcement officials and agencies to determine the immigration status of every person who is arrested burdens lawfully present aliens because their liberty will be restricted while their status is checked, she wrote. You go! She also said Arizona could not make it a state crime for non-citizens to be in the state without proper documents, nor could it allow the police to conduct arrests without warrants if officers believe the offense would result in their deportation. This is a fascist law. This is bad law. She said there was a substantial likelihood of wrongful arrests. 
Republican candidates, including Senator John Dang Fence McCain of Arizona, who is seeking re-election, criticized the Obama administration for bringing suit, said John. Instead of wasting taxpayers' resources filing a lawsuit against Arizona and complaining that the law would be burdensome, McCain said the Obama administration should have focused its efforts on working with Congress to provide the necessary resources to support the state in its efforts to act where the federal government has failed to take responsibility. Well, you can't expect John to take a reasoned, longer view of the situation or discuss its wider implications. He's just a damaged Paul running for re-election in a wingnut state. And what can you expect of a man who tried to take the likes of Sarah Palin with him into the White House? Like he cares about anything but staying alive in the limelight? No. I'm John McCain, and I approve this message. Dave, I was in the bank, and... uh, my, my friend there, D, who's behind the counter sometimes, uh, who has now identified me as a comedian and would from time to time say, this is a joke-free area, Peter. Uh, <laughs> just brought me over to a desk, you know, very conspiratorial. I said, I have a joke for you. Actually, it's something I read in the paper. I've got to read it to you. And she read this to me, you know, directly. In, in the, the bank. bank. But I've got, it's, it's from the AP. It's a real thing. Okay. But it's, i got to start with a headline. Killer Biscuits Wanted for Attempted Murder. Okay. Oh, I'm ready. Okay. I can't wait. All right. Lisa Burnett, 23, a resident of San Diego, was visiting her in-laws, and while she uh, there, while she was there, she went to a nearby supermarket to pick up some groceries. Several people noticed her sitting in her car with the windows rolled up and her eyes closed with both hands behind the back of her head. One customer who had been at the store for a while became concerned and walked over to the car. He noticed that Lisa's eyes were now open and she looked very strange. He asked her if she was okay and Lisa replied that she'd been shot in the back of the head and was holding her brains in for over an hour. The man called the paramedics, who broke into the car because the doors were locked, and Lisa refused to remove her hands from her head. When they finally got it, when they finally got in, they found that Lisa had a wad of bread dough on the back of her head. <laughs> a Pillsbury biscuit canister had exploded from the heat, <laughs> making loud noises that sounded like a gunshot, and the wad of dough had hit her in the back of the head. When she reached back to find out what it was, she felt the dough and thought it was her brains. She initially passed out, but quickly re- recovered and tried to hold her brains in for over an hour while someone, until someone noticed and came to her rescue. Oh. Lisa is a blonde. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm having trouble holding my brains in after that one. Radio Free Oz and the Oz team makes it happen. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. David Osman, our co-host. Phil Fountain, the man that makes it so beautiful. Tom Gedwillow in charge of the web. Chaz Glass, doing our finances and keeping us honest. Dave Maloney honestly recording our beautiful sounds. Bill McIntyre produces it all, and Scott Wiles in charge of the social media. Tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow.